0: Created live on Fireside. Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. We are broadcasting live on the Fortify Network right here on Fireside. We are thrilled to have you here, and we want to invite you all to share the show. Uh, We have a nice audience today. We want you to make sure you go down to the left-hand corner of the application right now. Go to Broadcast to the World. That allows you to actually uh, broadcast the show onto other platforms. Uh, we are joined today by, uh, by our guest, Nicole. Uh, she is uh, Nicole Laporte and she is a journalist and we will be talking about Going South, the expansion of Southern colleges and how Northern woke students are enrolling on those campuses. But first we want to highlight some news of the day. Uh, So what we have is why are so many colleges having resetting their tuition. Colby Sawyer College is reducing its price by 60%. So tuition more accurately reflects what students pay. Other institutions are doing the same. This comes to us from Higher Ed Dive. Starting next academic year, Colby Sawyer College will be decreasing tuition, but it's not just having a few hundred dollars off the sticker price. The college is cutting its price from $46,364 to $17,500, a drop of more than 60%. The move, said President Susan Stubner, is intended to to make more students consider attending the private New Hampshire college. Uh, We did a show on this earlier, uh, and we would love your thoughts on this. We are going to continue to monitor this tuition reset trend and see what else is going on out there as far as our uh, institutions of higher education, especially our small colleges uh, and our campuses that are strapped for enrollment, such as up in places like Vermont and other rural locations. Our second story comes to us from Inside Higher Education. Endowment returns are falling for the fiscal year of 2021. Um, According to the article, after booming returns from a red-hot market last year, endowments across higher ed have taken a hit this year, with declines seen across the sector. As many colleges begin to make their endowment results available, the numbers coming out show us a tale of two years, one up. And the other way down which experts attribute to market volatility higher education endowments had a median return of 30.1 percent in the fiscal year of 2021 but analysts from this year shows declines we're going to keep an eye on this we're actually inviting uh, an expert in college and university endowments onto the show in the weeks to come and we will continue this conversation and finally also coming to us from inside higher ed an incident uh, down at the University of Kentucky. A white University of Kentucky student was arrested by campus police on Sunday after social media video showed her attacking two black students and shouting racial slurs at them. Sophia Rossing was charged with alcohol intoxication in a public space, disorderly conduct, fourth degree assault and third degree assault. Um, Her bond was set at $10,000 according to WKYT. Kyla Spring was the first student she is seen attacking uh, and she was working in a dormitory at the time. She said Rosing appeared intoxicated spring asked roasting if she was okay and she continued to look at me and she started calling me a racial slur um she bit me along on on my arm and she punched me in my face and the video roasting uses the slur repeatedly um i'd like to recall back to uh, last uh year in the first season of uh office hours we had a great conversation with our colleagues at the george washington university about how they are changing how they did residence hall staffing And it really uh, kind of got me thinking about this story uh, because uh, it really shows what should students be doing in residence halls in terms of staffing them. Um, And so I I encourage you to please go back and listen to that show. Uh, So today we have Going South, the Expansion of Southern Campus Appeal. I'm gonna invite Nicole up to the stage uh, and make sure that she can uh, grab the microphone. So Nicole, you're gonna see an invitation to speak. Uh, you will uh, accept that invitation and come on up to the stage and hopefully we can uh, get you on up here and we can start the show in terms of getting you. Uh... All right.
1: Am I on? You are on <laughs> oh, Nicole. Okay, we're fantastic. gonna get this.
0: We are gonna get this. All good. And and I just invited you to video. So if you want to accept that, too, that's fine. If not, we can just keep you on audio only. So thank you, Nicole, for being here. And uh, I really appreciate your time. I absolutely adored this article. But first, let me do a little quick introduction for you. and make sure that we give you all the introduction and hosting that uh i, I want to be a hostess with the mostess. i want to try my best <laughs> here. um so our southern universities and colleges finding a surge of applicants from woke havens on the coasts in this particular episode of office hours with dr devoe we're going to be joined by the reporter nicole laporte whose recent piece for town and country documents how students and parents are seeking southern campuses where the temperatures, as well as campus culture, seem to be warmer. Um, Nicole Porte is a Los Angeles-based senior writer for Fast Company who writes about technology and the entertainment, uh, entertainment industries. Um, she previously was a columnist for the New York Times and a staff writer for Newsweek. The Daily Beast, and Variety. It's as if she, you know, just knows what I read all the time. Um, She also has developed a strong interest in higher education. Her book, Guilty Admissions, The Bribes, Favors, and Phonies Behind the College Cheating Scandal, was published in 2021. Welcome, Nicole, to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. It's thrilled to have you here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And just so you know, I would completely, I have no problem going on video, but I'm not getting that request. So I'll just be audio, but thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I appreciate you being here. So thank you so much. Um, I want to remind people that when you are here, if you want to ask a question, you can do that through the Q and a, or you can, um, uh, you can request to come on up to the microphone. Um, and please don't be afraid to use any of the reaction emojis and all that because it allows for us to have a, a more uh, engaging experience. So, Nicole, your background, as I said, you've got some great background in tech and entertainment reporting, but you have this uh, not so much a, a, you know, a one-shot deal with this particular article. Uh, you have the, the book about the, um, the, the uh, admissions scandal. What brought you to this idea of wanting to do more with higher education, what interests you about the sector? I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, so I know it looks it looks a little funny on paper, um, but yes, my background, I live in LA and my background is covering entertainment, the entertainment business, and then more recently tech, tech and entertainment at Fast Company. Um, but I just, you know, a few years ago when the Varsity Blues scandal hit, um, I found it so intriguing for so many reasons, as I'm sure most people did, particularly people on this call. And I was sort of in the mood to pivot. And I I wanted the challenge of a new reporting sort of topic. And so I ended up, you know, embarking on that project and writing the book. And so for a year, I was really immersed in following the scandal and talking to people about it and getting, you know, just jumping into the whole higher ed, um, you know, subject and debate about college admissions. And So that was kind of the start of it. The book came out in 2021. And since then I have been writing more about it. So for town and country, I've done a few stories, you know, because if you remember so much happened, it was like the varsity blues scandal hit and then COVID, which affected higher ed greatly. Um, And then BLM and the culture wars, excuse me, I have a dog. Um, And so there was just a lot going on. And so I have started to write about it. And so the most recent article yeah, is this, the, you know, the idea of of kids not from the South, you know, suddenly sort of looking at Southern schools, not so much as safeties necessarily, but as places they actually really want to go for a number of reasons.
0: And and I want to I'm wondering, as you were writing this and, you know, your background with tech in that particular story, one of the things about the Operation Varsity Blues story that always kind of blew my mind. And I remember when it broke, I was working for my home office and several of my my friends, because I'm based out of Boston and that's where, you know, all of the announcements came. Oh, right. Yeah. Legal announcements. And so around here where higher education is basically a cottage industry and, you know, we have a lot of friends and colleagues who live around us. So like, are you paying attention to what's happening? Are you paying attention to what's happening? And it's like, what, what, what? And then, um, you know, people at at some of your more prestigious institutions in the Boston area were literally grinding their teeth going, oh God, please not, I hope we're not one of them. I hope we're not one of them, yes, <laughs> you know, yes. one of those things. But yes. I think, uh, you know, as I was reading your article in town and country about this, this kind of focus on Southern schools, um, and I thought about your your um, about the story about the um, Operation Varsity Blues. And one of the things that was really kind of indicative of that was this idea of uh, prestige and this idea of my child needs prestige, whereas this article in Town & Country kind of moved into this direction of I'm moving away from not necessarily prestige. And I want to talk to you a little bit about Like one of the things I noticed from the articles, a lot of the students and their parents that you interviewed noted that they were in honors programs at these institutions. So that that does add that prestige level. But they were looking for something that was away from that kind of stereotypical grind that comes along with um, going into the admission cycle and the stress and the strain did you find this to be an interesting kind of juxtaposition between the prestige desire of the operation varsity blues and now into this idea of we want our child to get, or I myself want to get a good education, but I don't want that grind that, that stress.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a few points to sort of unpack and, but definitely what you're saying is true. Um, But to begin with, I think, It's no surprise if you have a student or there's a student who is, you know, the whatever, 1% or 3% and president of the class and and has a very good shot of going to an Ivy League. I don't think that changes. I don't think that's who we're talking about. So that desire for prestige and for super high achieving students, I don't think that's changed. But I do think, you know, due to a variety of factors, there's kind of a weariness amongst families, amongst students at just what, at, at the prospect of, of of how difficult it is to get into these colleges and, and what college looks and feels like post-COVID. So for those students who aren't necessarily going to be accepted by an Ivy League, um, you know, I, th- I think there's just this kind of despair when they look at the numbers. And what is Stanford now? Like 3%. <laughs> um, Harvard is, you know, I mean, these numbers are so low. So I think there's this kind of sense of like, I'm not getting in anywhere in these schools that maybe I once would have, like maybe the schools right below the Ivies, maybe like a Tufts or a Georgetown or a Duke, like even those now have become just so impossible that I think there's a recalibration in the way people are looking at schools that's kind of opening them up toward schools that they might not have been so open to before. And a lot of those fall into this Southern category And then, you know, when you factor in the woke, we can get into that later more deeply. But when you the so-called woke ideology that that more as as conservative families call it, um, that has overtaken a lot of schools, that they're just there's they're they're tired. They're despairing. The kids are are coming off COVID. They're tired. They just want to go to a college where they can, you know, not wear a mask and be outside and have a good time. So I think there's a lot of things feeding into it. But I, but I, but as far as the prestige, I just think those, those students that, you know, any, and and I should say, even the kids that are looking at SMU or TCU, I mean, if you told them they could go to Yale, believe me, they'd go to Yale. So I don't think yeah. the prestige is gone. I just think it's gotten so difficult to get into those top schools that families are really reconsidering what, what the quote-unquote good options are, and some of those are options that they may not have considered a few years ago. Yeah, I, I love
0: what you're saying here, and I think that idea of being a little bit more critical. I wonder, from the, the COVID connection, one of the things that I, I noticed over the last uh, two years was institutions, especially in warmer weather locations, were able to do more in-person work. Um, whether it be because they decided to put in tents, whether it be decided to, they had mask mandates that were not permitted by their governors, et cetera, that they were able to kind of maneuver these ways to do things. And, and, you know, that idea of a life on campus, which came through in your story, um, this idea of life and what does life feel like you even, um, poked some, uh, hooked at orientation where one institution, which was, I think it was Georgetown, had this orientation program where it was very civically minded. And it was, you know, in a very typical way. I mean, like when I read this description of what the institution was doing, it was very much in the line of, we're going to go into the community and do some civic engagement. We're going to talk at a civic level and we're going to heighten our experience. And, they, and whereas the other institution uh, which I think was Auburn was like we're gonna have a carnival, you know. <laughs> and right. Like people like that sounds like fun. I yeah. would rather do that. Um, yes. You know, as you were talking to folks, you know, you you kind of fell into two areas where people were really feeling connected, which is this feeling of belonging, community, this idea of I want to be here because there's a spirit, and then there was also the kind of more relaxed, potentially. um, political overtones. And today we're broadcasting this on election day. So I think it's, it's a little bit interesting, but talk about that spirit, what people were saying they were feeling when they were going into these spaces. And these are people who are from say, um, you know, suburban New York city um, places like even down into New York city, people from the Boston metro area, the, the California coasts, Where people are a little bit uh, more likely when you actually look at admissions, um, uh, you know, kind of what we know about admissions, most students, unless you're getting into these elite institutions, go within a three-hour travel to their home, okay? So if you're talking about a Midland or a student going to an open enrollment campus, they're looking at more of a three-hour kind of circumference, whereas... Uh, what you're talking about in this article are people going a bit farther than that. Um, so talk a little bit about that kind of uh, that belonging connection to what you heard from your your uh, your subjects who you spoke to.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of one young woman I spoke to, and she's probably the best example. And not all of these details made it into the story, but I remember her saying, and she was um, from a New York a New York City suburb, and you know, very competitive high school, and you know, she said, I don't know if it was junior year or sophomore year, COVID hit. You know, obviously New York had very stringent laws. You know, they were on Zoom. She missed basically a year of school, masks all the time. And then BLM happened. And she said, you know, everything just became so politicized. And she said, look, I'm, I'm a progressive person. I absolutely stand behind BLM. But like she said, her friends, if she didn't put a BLM, you know, the icon that, that you could put on Instagram. Like if, like if she, if she didn't put it up fast enough, people were like yelling at her. I mean, she felt like she was literally being bullied because she wasn't being, you know, politically, um, I don't know, aggressive. Uh, uh, She wasn't being. She's
0: not as politically engaged as the rest of her.
1: Yeah. And And she's she's like, look, I'm not against it. I'm for it. But, you know, and so she just, she just felt so weary and just felt like, and I talked to a lot of the kids I talked to also. And, I mean, granted, some of these definitely were more on the conservative side of the spectrum, but they felt like in the classroom at their schools, you know, if you weren't voicing the most liberal, progressive viewpoint, you would be really, like, w- ridiculed or or bullied or they' they're just that they said that they they didn't feel they could actually have a debate. Mm-hmm. um and and the election was going on. I mean, everything was just so heightened. And so, so these particular kids suddenly, you know, they went on a tour of like Auburn or SMU. And first of all, no one's wearing masks. Everyone's outside. Classes are being held. I mean, some of the universities down there, yeah, like you say, they brought classrooms outside. They set up sofas. They set up screens. Um, you know, people are playing Frisbee and, you know, and I think there was just such a sense of relief, like, oh my God, I can just put my guard down and Did talk about breathe what
0: breathe again. Like there's there's that. Yeah. I had that kind of feeling when I was reading through the article that people were like, I can. okay, I can actually feel like I have some kind of weight of the world taking off my shoulder.
1: Yeah. And then the other the flip side of it, and I get into this in the article, is that, you know, at some of these schools, you're walking into a very opposite. (laughs) I mean, sort of the, the polar opposite extreme, which which has its own drawbacks for some of these students who are used to living in the northeast or in these more sort of progressive areas because suddenly, you know, at the height of BLM, you're at a school that's 61% white. What does that mean? What are those conversations you're hearing? Um, you know, there there isn't much there's no diversity. You know, you're you're kind of going to, you know, someone mentioned Donald Trump's son was speaking or you know, I mean, you're kind of going from one extreme to the other. Yeah. So, there's there's a lot going on, but I think for some of these students, they just were like, I don't even want to go there right now. And I just want to like get my education, make some friends and, you know, not be judged for what I am or not doing or saying. Yeah,
0: and, and one of the things that was interesting to me is, is kind of the shift also from some of these college coaches or, or consultants who are helping with admissions saying that some of these institutions that were never on the table are now things that they have to become, uh, are now institutions they have to become more familiar with because there is a certain level of a demand or at least an interest. Um, I'm, not even gonna, I'm not gonna necessarily say demand, but I think that there, there is an open kind of opportunity here. Um, one of the things you wrote in the article, the honors programs at Southern schools are also drawing out of staters. Sarah Langford, an independent college counselor in Chicago, said so a student who, worked with, who she worked with recently turned down an Ivy to attend the Honors College at the University of South Carolina, where the, the admitted students have an average weighted GPA of 4.7. Quote, she wanted the full college experience, but still wanted to get the excellent academics. Um, I, I'm wondering when I talk to colleagues about that, um, and I I brought this up with I consult with different universities and colleges. One of them I'm consulting with is a is a pretty well known. I'm not going to out my 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 client right now, but one is a pretty well known, very um, highly selective institution in New England. And um, I I brought this this article up with them and saying that you know are we going too far? in a uh, road of the grind starts immediately. Like I've heard from people say, I brought my child on a tour, and they didn't feel like they belonged there. They didn't feel like there would be something for them to do other than school. Um, And when you're touring a New England or a Northern campus or a Midwestern campus that might be elite school in, say, November, October, that's a different feel than a Southern school where they're still outside and hanging out and it seems to have more life. Um, I wonder how much of that, and this is more of like for my colleagues to say, are we not putting our best foot forward when it comes to the belonging and and affinity side um, and really kind of pushing the academic rigor side Um, and can you do both? And I think one of the things that your article says is that you can, you have to, uh, be intentional about it. And some of these Southern schools are doing that when you were talking to folks at the schools, are they aware of this bump and are they trying to figure out how to make the bump bigger?
1: Um, they are, yeah, yeah. And, and different schools, I talked at length to, um, administrators at SMU at Southern Methodist University. And they were interesting because they, and I'm in California and they, a lot of the kids from out of state that are going to SMU are actually from California. It's one of their, it's their biggest out of state state. Um, and they said, you know, first of all, this has been going on for a while. It started kind of in the nineties. Um, but they said, you know, they mentioned factors that I didn't even really get into. But first of all, if you live in California, you a lot of families here feel that our state schools are, are not available to, to a lot of us because they've gotten so prohibitively competitive. I mean, to get into UCLA or Berkeley or, and not even just those two, I mean, many others, it's, it's literally like you have to have a perfect transcript and, right, right. you know, be a top student. So there's kind of this exodus, I think, from California, which is now heading to those schools, to the Texas schools and other Southern schools. Um, so they are aware of it. I, I don't think, I think it's still kind of new to, you know, some of the other schools I talked to. So they're, you know, they haven't really articulated a plan, but they're thrilled. I mean, they love that these numbers are going up. Um, and I mean, I think they realize that a lot of, you know, the top, some of the top reasons kids are coming are, are because they're a welcoming environment and because they're all about hospitality and, and, you know, and so they're very proud of that. Um, but I don't I don't think they're necessarily doing anything different. I think they're just happy to broadcast their, you know, their message and their community more so than ever now.
0: Right, right. And, and I, um, I there will be I mean, here's the thing, as anyone who works in higher ed will tell you, your enrollment people are going to be watching these trends like, you know, crazy And they are going to drill down and decide where do we want to send our road warrior admissions folks. Where do high schools do we want to send them to? Once you get someone into those high schools and you have somebody have a great experience, they will continue to push that. And um, there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot of growth there that is going to happen. The other thing we know. Um, in terms of where our traditional 18 to 22 year olds live, it's the Southwest. Um, that is where there's actually a buildup. So um, whether it be Southern California or any of the states adjacent where they may say, you know what, I think I want, I'm at an elite institution, elite uh, private school. I'm not necessarily going to get into some of these other state institutions in California or, or, maybe into uh, one of the, the my reach schools that I was looking at. Let's take a look at, at some of these honors programs. And I would have to imagine that these college consultants, these college coaches are gonna key in on that as well. Um, I think that uh, another thing I wanted to talk about here is that kind of wokeism um, and drill down a little bit. Cause you did bring up this about this idea of like this tension and not knowing what to say and how to say it. Um, and one of the things in the article that I thought was interesting is there were some students who may not have considered themselves to be highly politically engaged, but once they're on this new campus in this new environment knowing that Donald Trump Jr. is a speaker or Ben Shapiro is coming to campus, what does this look like for them in terms of finding their political agency? Um, Did you you find that there were some other discussions around that, that people may have tried, maybe expanded on their uh, comfort level to say, you know what, in this place, I actually can build my political agency or build my political identity in a different way that that is that I wouldn't have had that opportunity at an institution that may not be as, um, I'm not going to say balanced, because we don't know what the balance looks like, but you're not going to see as many um, counter opinions on some of these campuses that are in more progressive leaning locations. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the person, I can talk about the student, I think you're talking about who I interviewed in the article, and he um, was from Los Angeles. He went to Harvard-Westlake, which is one of the top, or probably the top, uh, private, you know, um, upper high schools here. You know, very progressive, uh, or not very progressive, but, you know, very, what, what you would expect at an elite private institution. Um, and he decided to go to SMU, and and I think, you know, he was, he he was, a bit aghast, I would say. Um, And he just found, wow, like I I didn't realize what a bubble I lived in. I mean, this is, yeah, like he's the one who mentioned Donald Trump Jr. speaking. And, you know, I think he found, he was part of a frat. And he said some of the conversations on the WhatsApp were like, you know, about conspiracy theories and pizza gate. And he was just like, I can't believe now I'm in this, in this bubble. And I'm not saying that's, I'm not saying that's the dominant conversation at SMU at all, but that's just this little pocket that he found. And so he said, look, it did make me much more, yeah, it grew his agency. He then went on, I think he's studying law now and he's, you know, he's actually very politically engaged. Um, But I don't know, I mean, to be honest, I don't know if he found a satisfactory um, sort of conversation there. I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know how much these schools they're getting. I didn't hear so much that students are getting this great debate where they're sitting there on election night, having this, you know, really balanced, you know, an interesting and provocative conversation as much as there's just, I don't want to use the word apathy, but there's more like, it's just people aren't getting up in arms. I, that, that's more of what I heard. And so, I mean, I do think if you're looking for that really provocative late night discussion about politics, I don't know if these schools are necessarily, I don't know if that's necessarily where you're going to find them. Um, and I don't mean to paint broad strokes but you know some of the schools I talked about so I I think more than anything it was just like a relief from just a highly politicized environment which some of these kids were feeling at their high schools
0: and and that's um I think it's it one of the things that as I've been talking uh to practitioners on campuses um one of the things that that some institutions are suffering with. So I was I had a conversation with the vice president for student affairs at Spelman College, um, and um, it's in the South. Obviously, it's a it's a very selective HBCU, lots of tradition, uh, that sort of thing. And one of the things that he was discussing with me was that during COVID, um, especially, there were campus traditions, and and the HBCUs have. Uh, almost a, an, another level of campus tradition. It's tradition and then tradition upon tradition. And during COVID, they lost the opportunity to have some of these traditions actually take shape because of uh, following uh, health guidelines, public health guidelines, et cetera. And what they're doing right now is they're feeling in some respects that they're playing catch up, um, that, that some students who wanted to enroll at the time Uh, of COVID deferred their admission. They decided to come a different year. Um, We've seen this with other campuses. This Spelman's not the only one where there's these wackadoo kind of spikes of enrollment. And even for the students who this was the school that they wanted to be at, they're feeling like they're playing catch up. Um, They're feeling like they're not getting their full experience. And um, I think that's one of the things that some of the institutions that you highlighted in this article, um, they didn't have that. They didn't have that kind of interruption in the student life, that the student life continued to go on, maybe with some modifications, but it, it definitely meant that they were kind of continuing to pace themselves and outpace some of the other institutions that were out there. Um, and I, I think that that was something that was really going through my head when I was reading the story, I was like, you know what? I think one of the things that these institutions have been able to benefit from is there wasn't the shutdown, restart, shutdown, restart. They just kept running and they didn't have this change. And so when you visited the campus, it was like, it was almost like you were dropped out of the sky from Mars going, oh my God, this is, this is seemingly normal. Um, and uh, And trying to keep up with that. So that was something that was going through my head um, when I was reading the article. When you were looking at your your subjects, how did you find these folks? I mean, this was a, I think a, a pretty inspired idea in terms of the article. Why did you decide to write this article and how did you find your subjects?
1: Um, well, it was it was just a phone call actually from a someone I know who has a high school student. At one of these private high schools here in Los Angeles. And she said, she's also a journalist, um, and or an editor. And she said, she literally just called me randomly it was like, you know, you should really write a story, because I can't believe the number of students at this high school, and I'll say it was Harvard Westlake, um, who are applying and really want to go to these southern schools. And a lot of it's the families, and they're just they're just tired and they they wanna they want more. I just remember her saying they want more of a rah rah vibe, you know. And yeah. yeah. And also, they're, you know, they're I don't know how she phrased it, but it was like, you know, these aren't the kids that are going to Yale, but they, you know, they're looking for a good school. and suddenly these these southern schools are are widely appealing. And I just can't believe how many kids are going. and it and it kind of rang a bell. I, SMU immediately popped into my mind because when I was doing the Varsity Blues book, um one of the the parents involved, Jane Buckingham, her son, who you know they illegally you know corruptly got into USC but the whole irony of the story was that he really wanted to go to SMU and he's you know from Los Angeles i think he went to the Brentwood school it's also very you know prestigious school and and i remember at the time thinking i had to look it up like SMU what is that it was like Southern Methodist and then i remember like looking into it and you know, just hearing about it is beautiful. And then it kind of kept coming up in my life. Like I wrote a profile of Whitney Wolf Heard, um, the founder of Bumble and she went to SMU. So I just feel like a long, the past few years, I kept hearing about SMU. So when this woman called me, I was like, Oh my God, yes. I've, Oh, and I kind of want, I was like, I want to write a story about SMU. Like what's up with this school. And so that was the, that that's how it started. And then, I mean. I don't know. I think I, because, you know, through writing the book and writing some other articles, there are a lot of college counselors I talk to regularly and stay in touch with. And, you know, so I reached out to them. And it was funny because, especially in LA, I will say, like, there is a, I underemphasize under-emphasize the, um, just the explosion of kids from California going to schools, specifically in Texas. Like, it's huge. And so, unsurprisingly, these counselors were like, oh my god, yeah, I have families and I love, you know, they could, they were telling me about TCU and we love TCU and, you know, they were, the counselors were all excited about the schools. <laughs> and yep, yep. so it was actually very, it was pretty easy. And then I just, I mean, I just kind of kept, you know, I, I know people with, with high school and colleges. So I just, it was just a matter of, you know, basic outreach and then friends knowing friends and, oh, I know someone and I know someone and all that.
0: Well, and I think one of the things that you'll see, and you've probably seen this already because you have this network of people who are college counselors and that sort of thing is, you know, I, I live in, I, I live in an environment outside of Boston. Uh, my, my daughter's in high school, people are already starting. She's a sophomore. So she's not, she's not in the, in the mix yet. And frankly, because I work in higher ed and my husband works in higher ed, we know too much. So we're like, no, she's not doing that yet. <laughs> we, right. we know we can pace it. We can do this. Um, but, uh, to be honest with you, you kind of find that your college counselors and your people in a certain mix, they say, okay, you've gone to this high school, you've gone to this, uh, kind of curriculum. These are the places that are probably, you know, it, it, let's look at, are you a big school person? Are you a mid middle-sized school person? Or are you a women's college person? What are you? And they, there's not a lot of, um, let's say kind of pushing the envelope from these, College council. Right. Like, right. Okay, yeah. If we're going to be doing this and we're going to go on the common app or we're going to uh, put some investment out there, how many institutions are you going to put out? Which ones are you going to apply to, et cetera, et cetera? They're going to go down a pretty common road. And what typically makes me nauseous and angry and all these other things. And I say to people, if you just stop worrying about what is that bumper sticker or that window detail on your car and let your child actually find their way into a place, you may find that they are going to apply to institutions that are far different than what you would have prescribed. Um, but, the, but we live in a consumer environment and that idea of consumerism definitely makes its way into college searches where students and their parents say, well, what is everyone else doing? And if so and so, why are we doing this? So this idea of colleges um, you know, that are in Texas, uh, Texas has a lot of state universities, a lot of institutions that are private as well, that are well, well known within the state. And like you said, it took a little bit of someone to burst a bubble to say, let's go into Texas and explore and see what might be out there. Um, and it's it's quite interesting to me to see how this has kind of manifested itself in these California schools where people look around and say, well, they went to SMU, they went to TCU. That, that sounds like something I can do too. Um, and it's easy to get to, it's easy to connect to. Um, it allows for people to say, all right, I'm gonna end. I am not going to uh, overlook this. Lots of times institutions are only as good as your alumni base. And one of the things I will say about some of these Southern institutions that you outline in the story, whether it be SMU, Auburn, UT Austin, Vanderbilt, they all have exceptional alumni networks. And once you're in a great alumni network, that is, is something that's going to be important for you as you graduate and you're trying to network within um, your institution. Did that come up at all? I know that you were talking about the admission side, any thoughts on maybe the other side of this of, are you going to be able to find an admission, uh, sorry, an alumni network that allows for you to have a different kind of um, uh, experience to connect?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, SMU, just because I I spoke to them you know at length um but they they're very proud of I mean that's something I think they have it on their website like how big the alumni network is and how particular out there yeah yeah and particularly you know if you want to stay in Houston and get a job and you know obviously Houston's a city that's been on the rise and there's a lot all kinds of industries there now so that is that's a huge selling point for them and yeah and the students I they did bring that up um I think it's also just any school wherever it's located that is you know has a has a healthy Greek life and has you know where there is a an emphasis on the social aspect. I think those schools always have great alumni because those, you know, it's just it's built into the DNA of the school that you're you're kind of constantly networking and socializing from the day you set foot on it on the campus and it never kind of ends. So, yeah, that that was definitely a part of it. Um, and then one thing I just wanted to bring up because just to circle back to. You know, when you were talking about the honors colleges and sort of the interest there, I mean, one thing I didn't really get into in the article, but I will say is that the cost factor, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think, again, this idea that everyone is recalibrating post-COVID, post-everything we've been through over the past few years. And like, you know, during COVID, it was like, really, you're going to pay 70 grand for your kid to be on Zoom? I mean, is that actually a Stanford education or what is that? And I think coming off it, and, you know, at the beginning of the show, you mentioned the endowment, you know, the market volatility right now. I mean, right now, if you, I just think there's a much, probably a much deeper conversation going on about financials when, you know, and and when you bring up like, what was it? University of South Carolina, the Honors College and that versus an Ivy. Well, wait a minute, how much money are we saving? And why don't we put that toward grad school? Or, you know, I think the cost of these schools Obviously, the state schools and there are a lot of really terrific public schools in these obviously Texas, North Carolina, um, Alabama. Like it's, I I think anyway. So just to just to throw in that I think the finances is also what's tipping the scales here a little bit.
0: I I absolutely agree with you, and I'm glad you brought that up because as we said at the beginning of the show, not only are institutions there their endowments are getting hit because of the volatility in the market, but also we're looking at tuition resets happening. I think that the uh, higher education and the cost of higher education has become completely unsustainable for most people. Like, I don't care how wealthy you are. I mean, this is, this is bonker donkers that what, the, what is being charged by institutions. And people are saying, can we get something uh, in terms of the quality of education at a lower price point that is going to allow for my kid to either go to grad school at some point or even not move back and live in my basement, you know, like I want them to have a life, I don't need them to be with me for the until they're 60. And so we need to kind of think that through. And I think that your Point there is super important is that this isn't just about the better weather or maybe a lesser um, tension, tension, heavy uh, political climate. Um, this can be more about like, OK, what are we spending? And mm-hmm. let's let's talk about that. And what's the value? Um, we are talking to Nicole Laporte. She's a journalist. She wrote a story um, in one of the more recent uh, uh, editions of Town and Country. The story itself is called Southern Exposure. College applicants, including those from liberal northern enclaves, are flocking to traditional southern schools where the vibe is more than rah-rah, is more rah-rah than racial reckoning. It is, a new, is it a new front in the culture wars or just a twist on an overheated admissions cycle? Um, next week uh, on Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe, we will be joined by uh, labor attorney Al O'Connell, Um, We will be discussing unionization on campus, uh, what that looks like. We are going to talk about resident assistants, faculty, et cetera, graduate assistants, um, and talk about what, what the labor climate is on college campuses. This is a very important topic. Hope you're able to join us. And then on November 22nd, on Thanksgiving week, we will be joined by several contributors to the book, Brave Women at Work, Stories of Resilience, including higher education leader Sheila Higgs. Calder from uh, Winthrop University in South Carolina, and I hope you can join us. So if you are following me here on Fireside, please make sure you set your alerts so you can get uh, information on upcoming shows when they are posted. Um, I want to talk, Nicole, about, uh, I think it would be completely inappropriate for us not to talk about the Dobbs decision and how this uh, has come to uh, hit our campuses. We've had several shows where we've discussed what this actually looks like in terms of practice, in terms of providing students with not only uh, health care on campus, uh, in terms of what colleges and universities can post on their websites, what they what services they can provide. One of the things I heard from folks, um, especially up here, and I will, I will be very clear, is that I live in a liberal bastion uh, in blue, blue, blue Massachusetts, which is really more purple, but that's another conversation for a different show. Um, But what I hear from folks who have a particular political mindset is my child will never go to a school in one of these red states where uh, women cannot have access to uh, safe and um, available abortion. And I say to them, I said, that's great. You may think that. But ultimately, one of the things that I think we need to be very clear about is that that is a very privileged kind of stance to be at. And ultimately what I'm hearing from people who work in these environments, they are saying that it isn't affecting their enrollment. It is not affecting the students who would have looked at their institution because of the various reasons. And the students who do enroll fall into the camps of they may have access because their family will get them back to whatever state they need to go to to get the services they provide because they have the financial wherewithal to do it. And the students who are actually hurt are the students who can't afford to find an alternative. Um, As you, I know this was written, was this written before Dobbs or what, give us an idea of when you wrote this how it kind of overlapped with the Dobbs decision. And then I'm, we get to a follow-up question.
1: Yeah, it was just playing out. I think it had just happened. And so, yeah, I did. I do have some anecdotes in the story and I got some sense of the conversations it was bringing up, but um, it was early on. And particularly when I put that question to the universities, I mean, they weren't really prepared to answer. You know, I mean, they didn't really want to, it, it was still really unfolding and they were they were, they were sort of, yeah, it was very fresh. But I mean, yeah, those. Com- yeah, go on. No, go ahead. Nicole. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, the conversations came up and I have the anecdote in the story where, you know, there's a family in Manhattan and, you know, they've they the, the, the father, you know, was just very weary of the, the private high school culture that had, you know, as, as he saw it was, quote unquote, too woke. And he really didn't want that for his kids. So he shifted the college focus away from like, I forget what it was, Stanford and Georgetown to like SMU and Mm -hmm. some other schools. And the kids or the the daughter was on board. And so the college counselor was helping them navigate this. And then the college counselor told me he, you know, he suddenly got a text from the daughter after the Dobbs was announced and said, there's no way in hell I'm going to a school in Texas. Mm -hmm. And he said then, you know, they had the sort of uncomfortable Zoom meeting with the dad on one screen and the daughter on another and it just got sort of not pleasant. And eventually the daughter just clicked off and, and I don't know what happened. I never, I didn't follow up, but um, yeah. And then, but, but, but on the other hand, you, you know, these schools, you know, particularly college campuses, as you know, are, are very different. You know, they're, they're, It's a, it's a totally different climate than, you know, than the, the sort of st- what's going on in the state Capitol or, you know, it's, it's very, it's not, at all, it's usually very at odds, um, with sort of the greater politics of the state. I mean, look at UT Austin, um, university of Miami, things like that. And I know, cause I was spending a lot of time just looking on Instagram at, you know, students and what they were posting and, and there's, there's plenty of activism at a lot of these schools. And so I don't think the decision reflects the, the university's politics. It, it, if anything, it puts them in a kind of uncomfortable place, but, um, Yeah, so I I did see those conversations start to start to happen.
0: Well, and I think that it's interesting that I'm hoping that at some point we can have conversations about having conversations. Um, And what I mean by that is um, when I look at institutions right now, a lot of colleges and universities, I was just on the faculty at a leadership summit um, where we had college and university students come to Boston this past weekend. Um, It was a a two-and-a-half-day summit, and students came from everywhere, from community colleges to state and uh, private institutions all over the country. Okay, so all the way from, you know, literally uh, Suffolk University was there, and the students literally walked across the street to come to the sessions because the hotel was across from their residence hall, all the way to people who came from California. And what I heard from these student leaders is one of the things that they're struggling with is how do you have uncomfortable conversations? And one of the things that came through in this article to me was um, whether or not one of the things you said earlier was this idea that maybe student activism or maybe some of these conversations weren't exactly happening, but I'm wondering if the, maybe the the soil, the fertile soil might be uh, actually uh, in a better state in some of these institutions than say in a place like a school in New England or a school in California where there is less tolerance, and a perceived less tolerance for difficult conversations where there might be counter opinions. And I'm interested uh, as a result of your article to kind of keep an eye on this and reach out to my colleagues and, and people who have been on the show and people who I've had in my life to say, what are you doing in your environment where maybe the political landscape on the outside of the campus may be a bit more conservative, but on campus, it has found some level of maybe like equilibrium where people can agree to disagree um, in some respects, whether it be in their fraternity house or uh, people who are members of a certain club on campus or a varsity team, and they're able to make things work because if I'm on the the field hockey team with some people who don't agree with me in terms of my politics, we're still teammates and we're gonna continue to play together, okay? But where do these conversations happen in practice? And that's one of the things I'm really trying to keep an eye on. My hope is that some environment, and I'm thinking it's going to end up being a place like a Southern uh, institution, that needs to exist within their community, that there will be employees. I always say to people, you know, we always talk about town gown relations and how a college or university sits and they are a visitor to this space. They did not create the town around, the town existed before the institution moved in. And we have people who work and make a livelihood off of that institution. So they either come to the institution to work, they're not all faculty, some of them are hourly wage employees, some people have part-time jobs, some people have a store or a salon or something in the, the town adjacent and they bring students to them. Those environments I think are more ripe for these balanced and maybe uncomfortable at times conversations, but there is value there. And I'm hopeful that we might be able to find those conversations happening. And I have a feeling they're going to be in some of these redder states than maybe in our blue states. I'd like your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, the one thing I hear a lot is just, and I live in Los Angeles, which is also obviously a very blue bastion. Um, But, you know, and the students will tell me it's like it's an echo chamber. And I think that's kind of what you're saying about some of, you know, any of these prestigious institutions that are located in these highly educated, highly progressive areas of the country. Um, And I mean, I guess in order for there to be a discussion, you need people on both sides of the table. Right. And so the question is, are you getting a lot of, you know, conservative students flocking to these student to these places? And if so, then maybe there's more of a chance for that conversation, but instead what we're, what, what the whole story was about is we're actually like the, the, the movement is from the Northern, you know, the Northern kids or the Western kids, whatever to the Southern. So I just think by nature, you're going to have more voices there to hopefully, I mean, that would be wonderful to have like a balanced conversation and try to work some of these issues out. So, but I, I think I know what you're saying. And and yeah, I think um, there's perhaps less of, Less hostility, is that the word? <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> well, it's also. I mean, I think it's also a little different. I, I, you know, people in my life who are from the south, um, and say, "Well, bless her heart." Well, like you know, <laughs> a word, it, it, that little phrase of "Oh, bless her heart," is is loaded, okay? Mm-hmm. But it is a, it is, it is something that's said, and then you move on, okay? Whereas, you know, the New Yorker transplanted in Boston and me does not let shit go by. Okay. So Mm -hmm. we're going to like keep harping on it until someone deals with it. Um, and I think that there's a, there's an absolute reality that you have a different kind of culture in these environments and maybe those conversations can happen. Um, I also wonder from a, from a flip side of, of your article of, one of the things that you want to be able to do on any college campus is when you are inviting people to become part of your community, that you make space for them and that they feel seen and that they feel that they have a a connection to the institution. And, you know, one of the things when when you have any admissions or enrollment office looking at their their numbers um, of who's coming and who's not, they're going to look at things like what state you're from. Um, You know, it is, if you're from uh, Westchester County in New York, suburb of New York City, it is a lot harder to get into some of your more elite colleges and universities. even though you may say, "Oh, these are great high schools, It's harder to go get in because everyone's applying to those schools from those high schools. It's a lot easier to be noticed when you are from an inst- from a high school that may be more rural. More out of the kind of the, the circumference of the, the typical draw. Um, and so, when you are someone from an enrollment office, you're looking to see how balanced are we in terms of our enrollment. And that balance includes what state you're from. Um, and one of the things that I think is important from your article, Nicole, is that colleges and universities are going to have to start to look at who they're pulling from, where they're pulling from. And why is the pull either happening or why is it becoming a kind of two poles banging into each other like on a magnet and repelling each other? And I think that that's, a, that's an important piece that this article has. So I really can, uh, I want to uh, applaud you. Quite thought-provoking, great article. I absolutely loved it. I gave it to my grad students to read for class. So, so, so
1: you oh, made it to the so supplemental reading list. So
0: there you go. Um <laughs> you. so So um, I want to sign off, but I do want to ask after I do a little sign off and give folks some ideas about what's coming up in the next few weeks is give you the last word, Nicole, tell us what you're working on and tell them how to stay in touch with you so they can watch uh, any future reporting that you put out there. So again, next week, we will have a discussion of unionization on campus with labor attorney Al O'Connell. Following week, we are going to be uh, joined by several contributors to Brave Women at Work, Stories of Resilience, including higher education leader and vice president for student affairs at Winthrop University in South Carolina, Sheila Higgs Burkhalter. So, uh, Nicole, tell folks uh, how to keep, uh, keep track of you, what you're working on, and uh, we'll then sign out.
1: Great, yeah, and thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun, and yeah, I feel like there's like two more hours worth of points we, we can we can oh, get into. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. I think it's Nicole Laporte one. Just look up my name. My photo's on there. Um, and I am now, yeah, I'm actually working on another story that you might find interesting about legacy preference. And oh, you know, you obviously, yeah, Amherst made the decision last fall, and so just kind of looking at what. You know, how bad is it at, at certain institutions and what's the likelihood of it going away? And and also kind of interestingly, how it's tied into the affirmative action um, debate at the Supreme Court, which is likely going to be undone. Um, so, yeah, so lot, lots to discuss in higher ed. <laughs>
0: very clear in their questioning that affirmative action and legacy They were asking a lot of questions um, about that. And so, yes, I think it's going to be an important article. So, Nicole, thank you so much. And uh, so you are listening to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Thank you for being here. And Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe is a live audio broadcast aired and recorded weekly on the Fireside platform. I am your host, Dr. Laura DeVoe, and thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, What's Up in the Academy. It is the number one higher education newsletter on the Substack platform. And follow me here on Fireside, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you, everyone. I'll see you next week. And now, go out there and learn something. Have a good one, everybody. I'm sorry. Oh.